the old pilots playing tales. Après moi, la déluge, part three. This is London. The Air Ministry have just issued the following communicate. In the early hours of this morning, a force of Lancasters of Bomber Command, led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC, attacked with mines the dams of the Myrna and Sorba reservoirs. It was as early as 1937 that the Air Ministry had drawn up a list of potential targets to attack in the event of the outbreak of war with Germany. One of the ideas was to destroy the large dams in the Ruhr, and many ways were examined to achieve this. Most involved in practically large weapons that at the time couldn't be physically carried, to other fanciful ideas such as huge rocket-powered torpedoes. Amongst these proposals was one from a chap called Wallace, who worked at Vickers. A clever chap, but a bit harebrained. As mad as a hatter, in fact. He thinks he can bounce a huge bomb along the surface of the reservoirs, right up to the dam. Many in the Air Ministry initially viewed his idea of a bouncing bomb as sheer madness and a complete waste of valuable time and resources, and his attempts to be taken seriously were rebuffed. Wallace had come up with the idea while skipping stones over the water at Chesil Beach on a holiday in Dorset, and had spent many hours in his back garden with a catapult and a few tanks of water, skipping marbles across his garden, until he had the data to back up his theory. His main obstacle was Air Marshal Linnell. Linnell was the controller of research and development at the Ministry of Aircraft Production, and, perhaps influenced by Wallace's boss at Vickers, Charles Craven, wanted Wallace to drop the idea and continue with his development of the Vickers-Windsor, a potential high-altitude bomber that the RAF desperately needed. Again and again the bouncing bomb proposal was rejected, until, perhaps prompted by Sir Henry Tizard, whom you might remember from an earlier tale, Tizard's Trunk, Linnell finally agreed to allow limited trials to go ahead. Wallace worked like a man possessed until his loved ones became concerned about his health, but he was driven to solve the continual line of obstacles that he had to overcome, both in the theory, design, construction and delivery, in addition to the bureaucracy that stood in his way. It wasn't just him, of course. As he progressed, he ended up with a team of experts around him. He spent months at the giant water tanks in Teddington, normally used for ship design, firing two-inch diameter wooden balls from a giant launcher, and Wallace progressed until he could present a viable proposition. This work also included the building of several large model dams by Dr Norman Davy of the Building Research Laboratory, which were then blown up to determine the best possible point of detonation for the mines. Unfortunately, these tests weren't to everyone's convenience, as an Air Ministry report mentions that allotment holders were bewildered and annoyed when a mysterious and sudden onrush of water swept down, inundating their plots. 
With his data ready, Wallace set about building scaled-up versions of his weapon, which were launched from a Wellington bomber in late September 1942, off the very beach where Wallace had first got his inspiration, Chesil Beach. These trials proved successful, but ahead were months of considerable political wrangling, which included Wallace threatening to resign from his position at Vickers. An example of the high feelings involved came from a wing commander in the Directorate of Intelligence who wrote to the Parliamentary Secretary for the Ministry of Production, stating, I attach the notes, I promise, concerning B.N. Wallace and his invention. In my whole experience of aeronautical engineers and inventors, I have never come across one whom I consider more able and it seems a pity that such a man should be balked so consistently by a civil service mind. Excuse me for speaking rather plainly. The pressure built in favour of Wallace's proposal, and eventually Air Chief Marshal Portal ordered an astonished Linnell to approve the mission. Wallace was finally told by Linnell on February the 26, 1943, that the air staff have ordered me that you are to be given everything you want. A few days later, Linnell announced his intention to resign. The date for the mission was set for mid-May, when the reservoirs were likely to be full. Wallace had less than three months to complete all his work, a monumental task. No aircraft could yet deliver the weapon, which itself had not yet been built. There was going to be precious little time for sleep in the coming weeks. The RAF ordered 30 Lancasters to be modified to carry the weapon and 150 of the mines, now called upkeep. Bomber Harris was far from impressed that he might be asked to divert a squadron from normal duties to take on the task. Whilst all this was going on, Guy Gibson was still on operations and was on his last raid before he went on leave. He'd done 173 missions and was attacking Stuttgart whilst dreaming of relaxing in Cornwall and snoozing in an armchair with his faithful Labrador beside him. His flight engineer brought him round, yelling, Port outboard's going, sir! Gibson decided to press the attack on three engines from low level. An 8,000-pound bomb whistled past his wingtip from above, followed by a shower of incendiaries only a couple of hundred yards in front. The Lancaster was bounced and tossed about like a leaf, but he successfully pressed his attack and eventually made it back to England. The next morning he was rudely awakened from his sleep whilst dreaming of his holiday. His ears were still ringing, and his eyes felt red and sore. Is it important, Adge? he said sleepily. It's your posting, sir, came the sad reply. A short while later, he was in OC5 Group's office. How would you like the idea of doing one more trip? he was asked. A pretty important one, perhaps one of the most devastating of all time. I can't tell you any more now. Do you want to do it? Within two days, Gibson had formed a new squadron, called Squadron X, since the Air Ministry hadn't got round to allocating a number. 
They assembled at RAF Scampton, their new home. All the aircrew were experienced and expert at what they did. Like Gibson, they had at least two tours under their belts. Despite being in need of rest, they had all answered the call to arms once more. Secrecy was vital and very strictly enforced. Should wind of their attack get to the Germans, their targets would become saturated with defences. All they knew was that the attack would be partially over water and from very low level. Gibson briefed his flight commanders. We'd better limit the height to 150 feet because we don't want the chaps going around the countryside hitting trees. Soon Gibson and Wallace met for the first time in an old country house. Barnes described the targets as certain objectives in enemy territory which are very vulnerable to air attack and which are themselves important military objectives. However, these need a vast amount of explosive placed very accurately to shift them or blow them out, you know what I mean, viaducts, uh, submarine patterns, big ships and so on. He went on to describe some of the problems Gibson would have to overcome. Low-level delivery, accurate dropping of a very large mine within a few yards, the danger of flak, balloons and flying low over still water at night. They soon met again at a special range in Kent to watch a test of the special weapon. Down came a lank at about 150 feet with this big mine slung underneath. Slow motion cameras began whirring and the mine fell quite slowly. It seemed to hang in the air before it hit the water with a mighty splash and disintegrated into six or more parts. They all said it wouldn't work, Wallace was saying. They all said it was too big and too heavy, but I'll show them. We've got another one up in the hangars there, and we'll strengthen it this afternoon and have some more trials this evening. Again and again, upkeep failed to survive the drop. The impact force was just too much for the strength of the casing. Wallace knew that they weren't likely to get everything right at the first attempt, but others were less forgiving. At Bomber Command Headquarters in High Wycombe, the results of the first trials were treated with withering contempt rather than despair. Sir Arthur Bomber Harris's first reaction to the project was, Tripe of the wildest description! Not the smallest chance of working. Now that the first real test results had come in, he remarked, As I always thought, the weapon is balmy. Meanwhile, Gibson was still training his crews and trying to work out how to ensure the release height and position was accurate, essential for a successful result. An early form of radio altimeter proved unusable over water. But then Ben Lockspeiser from the Ministry of Aircraft Production suggested using converging spotlights mounted in the belly and the nose of the Lancaster. The beams would come together when the aircraft was at the correct height. Gibson trialled the system and it worked well, giving a high degree of accuracy. When the idea was shown to his crews, one said casually, 
I could have told you that. Last night I went to see a girl strip tease, and there were two spotlights shining on her, and the idea crossed my mind. I was going to tell you. In fact, this was far from a new idea, since Captain Jenkins of the Royal Flying Corps had fitted a similar device to his BE-2 biplane during the First World War, and the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough were considering using the same idea to help Sunderland flying boat crews to land at night. The next problem to solve was when to release the mine. Again, a simple solution was found. A device was built that looked a bit like a coat hanger. Held to the eye, two prongs stuck out in front, and when the distance between them matched the position of the towers on the dams, it was time to release the mine. Some bomb-aimers found this device hard to use in a buffeting Lancaster, so replaced it with a loop of string, which served the same purpose, and they found easier to use. The Lancasters that they would fly, known as Type 464s, were also being heavily modified. Most of the armour plate that protected the crew and the mid-upper turret was removed to save weight, and the conventional bomb bay doors were replaced by front and rear fairings to direct the airflow around the gaping hole that awaited the weapon. Upkeep was large and would hang well below the belly of the aircraft. In addition, the mine needed to be spun before delivery, and a large hydraulic motor was fitted with a belt that would rotate the bomb and give it the needed backspin. This needed to be started at least 10 minutes before delivery and was controlled by the radio operator who also adjusted the speed, ensuring that it was a steady 500 revs per minute. The spin not only increased the range of the weapon, but would hold it against the dam wall whilst it sank to the correct depth. Although German physicists in the early 1900s had quantified the physics of bouncing solid objects off water, when Barnes Wallace turned his formidable intellect to the problem, he proved that backspin greatly extended the range of the bomb. This is known as the Magnus effect, whereby a spinning object effectively creates lift. The effect can be seen in the way a golf ball, football or tennis ball will curve in flight when spun. The effect increased the number of bounces that upkeep performed, thereby increasing its range. Not everything, though, was going well. Test bombs continued to break up, and with only three weeks left, Wallace was still struggling to provide a reliable weapon. There was a problem with the mahogany casing that was fitted to protect the core of the weapon. It was barrel-shaped to help the mine from deviating left or right. In some tests, the core, shaped like a very large oil drum, carried on for a third of a mile after the outer casing had shattered. Wallace finally took the decision to do away with the outer casing entirely, but without it, the steel core was still breaking up. The mine needed to be dropped from a lower altitude. Wallace asked Gibson, Can you fly at 60 feet above the water? If you can't, the whole thing will have to be called off. 
Gibson knew how much of a risk it would be to operate a 30-ton aircraft with a wingspan of more than 100 feet that low at night, but he agreed to try. The spotlights were adjusted to the new height and Gibson gave it a go. After a fairly hair-raising test, he rang Wallace and assured him that it could be done. New tests were conducted and Gibson dropped an upkeep at 60 feet which bounced over the water for 600 yards, hitting the shore between the two screens that had been erected. With fewer training hours than the rest of the squadron, Gibson had delivered almost perfectly, and the weapon performed well. Barlow also dropped successfully at 60 feet and 220 miles an hour. At last, with barely a week to go, upkeep was finally working. However, Dropping from such a low altitude was far from safe. Les Monroe was ten feet too low. In daytime, the spotlight aldometer didn't work. When he released one, and the huge spray from the bomb hitting the water struck the belly of his aircraft, ripping it to pieces. Finally, a fully live upkeep was dropped by Shorty Longbottom, escorted by four Spitfires for security. This was the final test. Upkeep bounced seven times for about 800 yards at 730 metres and then sank. A moment later, the huge explosion from 30 feet below the surface sent a plume of water nearly 800 feet into the air. It was a complete success. It was great excitement and smiles on all faces except... Gibson noted, from one of the senior officers of Bomber Command, who went up to Wallace. Gibson heard him say, It's okay, you seem to have got your weapon to work, but you will never knock down that rubble. It's completely impossible. Barnes Wallace just smiled. With a couple of days to go, 617 Squadron carried out a full dress rehearsal. The next night, Gibson led another, which was a complete success. Everything ran smoothly and there was no hitch. That is, no hitch except that six out of the twelve aircraft were seriously damaged by the great columns of water sent up when their mines splashed in. They'd been flying slightly low. Most of the damage occurred around the tails of the aircraft. Elevators were smashed like plywood, Turrets were knocked in and fins bent. It was a miracle some of them got home. Gibson, ever mindful of the need for a successful attack, told them that on the actual show it wouldn't matter so much that they were damaged because once the mines had been dropped, the job would be done. The main thing was to get the mines onto the right spot. How the raid went, we'll find out in the next If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. 
Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.